Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Citing the Tone Interviews. My name is Elizabeth and today Daniel, Lauren, and I are excited to get to sit down with Guy Norman B. Mr. B was a Steadicam operator for 39 episodes over the first five seasons of the show, as well as a director for one episode in season seven. Mr. B, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. It's, uh, um, it's great to see the, the torch of the show and the enthusiasm uh, with, with you know, carrying on and uh, because it's definitely a special time in my life, and and I I have nothing but absolute you know fond, great memories of my time there. So it's good to good to be here. We are we are but a humble podcast, but we try. <laughs> yeah, so for a little background, we're curious: how did you get your start in television production, and what led you to getting the job working on ER specifically? Well, let's see. I I was uh, you know I went to college and studied cinema, film. Um, I got a job right out of college working for a company that rented motion picture equipment and we rented to Steadicam and Steadicam I knew was this cool piece of equipment from the shining and uh, you know, Kramer versus Kramer and Rocky. And, and, you know, I saw pictures of guys in the internet, you know, in, in American cinematographer magazine with this giant apparatus on and You know, I was like 130 pounds soaking wet. So I was like, well, I could never do that. It's just, you know, way too physical for, for me. But once I started working at the place and seeing some of the other, you know, working Steadicam operators come in and rent some of our gear. I was like, you know, maybe I could try this. So I took a workshop from the inventor, Garrett Brown. And he was like, look, man, you know, uh, being a Steadicam operator is not like being a linebacker in the NFL. It's more like being a dancer, matador. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it's more about balance and knowing your body and rhythm and pacing and timing. And I'm a huge music fan. So saw that rhythm and timing and, and, and attack and all that all made sense to me men- mentally. And so, you know, I, I started going out on weekends and doing student film and I put a little reel together and I passed that out to the other Steadicam operators that were out there working and making a living at it and said, look, if, the, if you get something that comes across your desk, that's uh, you know, a little under budget for what you normally charge or, you know, uh, small, un, you know, non-union student film, give them my number. And so uh, that's what happened. I built this nice reel based on, uh, you know, the, the, the little things I would do on weekends that I would borrow the equipment. And so once I went out on my own in like 88, 89, um, there was a lot of non-union stuff. There was a lot of music videos, like, you know, MTV at the time was just couldn't been hotter. And being in Los Angeles, there was, uh, you know, always some kind of big music video going on. And, you know, it was, it was, um, I, I was a young guy. I had long hair. I kind of like, you know, fit the mold of, I kind of looked like one of the band members at some time. So um, I, I got busy and I worked a lot and um, eventually got into the camera union in 91. So I just celebrated 30 years of being a member of IOTSI, you know, international cinematographers. Uh, and I, I, I didn't even send me anything. I thought I was going to get like a watch or something, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so flash forward to 94, I'd been on the road a lot in 92, 93 and barely home. And, um, I got a, I, I was doing this TV series in Seattle and I ran into a director I'd worked with a couple years earlier in Vancouver. I ran into him in the lobby of the, you know, I just gotten there to come and do a couple of days of steady cam. There's a new show on NBC, uh, Warner brothers that has this crazy all the, down these hallways, like all this great, uh, you know, flowing um, water, they call them waters. And we want to kind of replicate that on our show. It's a thing called Medicine Ball. And I kill, still keep in touch with a lot of those actors, Tim Amundsen and Donald Logue and um, 
anyway, so I ran into a director and he said, you know, I just did this show. And, you know, that's why I recommended you to come up here and do this. Cause I remember you being a great, um, you know, collaborator in 92 and now here it is 94. And, um, and I just did the, did ER in, at, you know, Warner brothers at, at Warner brothers in LA. And I had the, the, the toughest time with their Steadicam guy who they sort of inherited from the pilot and they had carried him forth, but you know, they, they were sort of looking for a reason to replace him. He said, if you're interested, I'll give him your name. You know, it would keep you in LA. It would, you know, it's Warner brothers right down the street, you know, from where you live. And so I was like, yeah, all right. And then at the time I had like, a, I think she was three months old, the daughter. She's now almost 27. Um, <laughs> so that gives you a little time uh, a record of how long this process, anyway. Uh, so, so I was like, you know, I just had a baby girl and I, you know, I, I would like to stay off the road as much as possible, but I want to work. And so, uh, a couple of days later, I get a call from these guys at Warner Brothers coming to uh, have a chat with Mr. Chulak, who was the producer, who has gone on to be like, you know, my mentor and, and uh, you know, a serious inspiration for my whole career since then. So I went and interviewed with them, came back and talked to the cameraman. Um, and they said, look, can you start on Monday morning? And, and uh, that was we were finished. They were finishing an episode with a director named Daniel Sackheim. It was like, as you guys sent me in, in one of the questions. It was the episode before Blizzard, mm-hmm. so there was there was like three days to finish, I think. And what was cool about the show is, you know, I, I'd heard good things about it. My mom was a huge fan um, of TV in general, and she said you should see this show. It's about doctors and and you know in the real life how it works in the real emergency room, and you're in the in it, and it's really well written. And you know, Anthony Edwards I had worked with before, George Clooney I had worked with before on a really bad show called Sunset Beat that he loves to talk about. Um, I done I done Steadicam on that with him, and, and you know years earlier. So uh, I said, yeah, I'll I'll be there Monday morning. And so you know, there's a lot that went into getting getting me there without the previous Steadicam operator knowing that he was being replaced on Monday morning. You know, yeah, I got a little sticky. Um, but I showed up and and just kind of took the took the bull by the horns because this guy who had started the show from the pilot was uh, not. He, he wasn't Steadicam friendly, even though he was the Steadicam operator. He didn't own a Steadicam; he rented it. So he, you know, would kind of start to talk the directors out of shots. They would go, "Well, it'd be great to come around this corner." He'd go, "Well, well, let's do it on the dolly, and I'll just put." And you know, they'd have to move equipment and move furniture, and the actors were, you know, there's dance floor. You put down plywood, and they were like, "Well, well, you know, I'm not going to use his real name, but but Larry, why why do we have the mm-hmm. Steadicam? Why are we paying you to do it? Where you can walk through here?" And he goes, "Well, you know, if that, you know." Uh, he had every excuse in the world, you know, he would, he would blow one of his marks and he would blame the actors for not hitting their marks and shit. You just don't do as a, as a, and, you know, it broke my heart. Cause I heard these stories when I got there and, you know, camera operators and steady cam operators in particular, you're, you're a problem solver. You're there to, to, to not only you bring the art and the flowing movement that we did, but you're there to say, look, let's do this. And the, the and you know, if the thing was like a, what we call a hard camera on a, on a head where you know it's pan until classic you know on a dolly that was one thing but if it was something that you could achieve with steadicam faster and even like add another you know element to it like i would always put iv poles and things i could wrap around to, to, you know you, you you it's a two-dimensional medium and you're trying to create that third dimension and that's always your goal you all you know, always 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 and so uh once I got there within a day or two, everybody was like, this is the way it should be. This is work. We're, we're making art. This is great. And at the time, the show 
had started airing and in like five or six episodes it aired and it was like climbing up in the ratings and you know Clooney would come in every Friday morning with a, a readout that it was a phone number you could call and get the Nielsen ratings back then. I don't know, it was sort of pre any social media. I think AOL was like maybe starting out. I think I had it, mm-hmm. but there, there was no, none of this that we have now. And he would come in Friday mornings and go, guys, you know, we did better. Our episode that aired last night did better than the last Super Bowl. It was, you know, which is just unheard of. And so, you know, Wow. And George, George was a great maven for all that stuff because he had literally been in a dozen failed pilots. Um, you know, he was having success. I mean, he did like Facts of Life and Roseanne and he was on the lot as sort of a guest star on the show called Sisters. That's how he found out about the script. He, you know, he, he, he became friendly in between scenes on Sisters. He would go and hang out in the casting office. And that's where he met John Levy and John snuck him an episode of uh, or the pilot episode of ER and said, look, this is written by Michael Crichton uh, about his experiences as a young man as, you know, before he became a full-time writer, he, he, he was a med student and it was offered to Spielberg as a feature film and Spielberg decided to do this silly dinosaur movie instead. So it's kind of sat <laughs> in the offices, <laughs> in the offices of Amblin and they wanted maybe turn, they're, they're turning it into a TV series. And so Clooney read it and said, look, man, I'm, I'm Dr. Roth look no further and the sort of the, the the legend is that they didn't they they said if, if george wants to do it warner brothers loves him we love him so they all they never even really cast for ross he was he was uh, always going to be ross from the beginning but anyway um we we uh you know george had done all these failed pilots so he was a great like barometer for how successful the show was so when i joined on in episode six there was a real kind of you know party atmosphere but you know it was a lot of work um because we wanted to, there was also another medical show that took place in Chicago Mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, They eventually moved to Mondays, I believe, after Monday Night Football uh, finished the season. But uh, the producers were scared to death of Chicago Hope. It was David Kelly. It was like, you know, that's some pretty Mm -hmm. big movie stars in there, or, you know, big stars in the cast. So, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure, but, you know, I kind of came in there and just had a ball with it and, 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 um, Again, it was so great to just kind of um, be handed this thing and just grow on it and, and just make, make, you know, make, uh, make fans along the way. Because uh, once we realized how fun it could be and how interesting and, and cinematic it could be, you know, that's where sort of the, the, the gloves came off and we started really pushing the envelope, which was I love. I, was, I, was, I just turned 30, so I was fired up. I was ready for anything. So for those of us who don't know, can you please give us a little background of what a Steadicam actually is and how it works and why it was so integral to ER's signature look? Yeah, I mean, the rumor was, I mean, I'll get to, to what it is technically, but the rumor was when Rod Holcomb read the pilot and saw that it was a feature film, that they, and it was a two-hour pilot. So it was a feature-length 130-page script or something with like you know, 75 characters. I mean, the whole point that Crichton wanted, and it was, through Dr. Carter's eyes, you know, how overwhelming and what a shitstorm you could walk into on day one with a medical degree, right? So, so the, the story was Rod said, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is with the page count being what it is, it was a real decommissioned hospital in Boyle Heights that they shot in. So no walls moved. I mean, that the set that I walked into, you could pull walls and doors were, everything was widened an extra eight to nine inches. And, you know, of course, all that medical equipment could be moved. But 
where they shot at the, at the hospital in Boyle Heights, they knew they couldn't move any walls. So Rod said, look, I mean, I, I can do this, but I'm going to have these scenes where I'm going to try and do them in one shot. And not everybody's going to get like a beautiful close up and coverage. We call it coverage when you go in and you get singles on everybody. He goes, there's going to be the odd person handing somebody a chart and saying a line of dialogue, and I'm not going to fucking cover them because that's going to, there's a half hour stop, get, move the camera here, light them. There's no way I'm going to do that. And they were all kind of on board with it. They were like, yeah, I mean, you know, do, do what you think is the right thing. So, so Rod's kind of set that style of the floating camera and things kind of never really stopping. And what it did, the, the, it was, I don't think it was an unintended consequence, but what the, what it, what the happy accident that happened again, it wasn't an accident, but because Rod's as skilled a director as they, uh, there ever were, but you became immersed in it and it wasn't, it didn't take you out of it. I remember at the time we were also competing against NYPD blue and homicide and homicide had a very like jump cutty kind of style. Um, mm -hmm. which to me as a, as a filmmaker kind of took me out of it. I, I had nothing but, you know, nice things to say about homicide, but the style that they adopted kind of took me out of it. NYPD blue did this thing where they would kind of like, they called it Sovieting where it looked like you were spying. They would tilt down somebody's hand on the, you know, and, and it was, it was their style and it was great. But what I liked about what we did with ER that I kind of fell into, um, was that we were, you were in the middle of it. If you wanted to see something tighter, we just pushed in on it. Um, you know, picking and choosing who, whose line of dialogue was on camera. And, you know, mm -hmm. and so that, that kind of became the, the consequence of, of Rod saying, uh, you know, this is a three page scene that in a typical television series would take me four hours to cover. And I'm going to try and get it in one shot. So if we rehearse it and shoot it, I'll get the scene in 45 minutes. And so of course, you know, the, producers that's like you know music to their ears right um <laughs> you know, 45 great cool and it, and it looked cool i mean you know as long as everybody knew when we got in the editing room the editor wasn't going to go where's uh, you know where's everybody's where's george clooney's close-up well george isn't going to get a close-up nobody is i mean maybe if the scene calls for it you know the beautiful part about that show is most of the episodes were frantic craziness and then we'd slow it down and then we'd get back get back into it or we'd have frantic craziness coming down a hallway and uh, somebody would wipe the camera and it would turn into a completely different docile, quiet scene. Meanwhile, you know, chaos just happened five seconds ago because that's what really happens in emergency rooms. We used to get letters from real ER doctors and nurses saying, Holy crap, this is exactly my experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And we, and you know, this is all credit to the writers. They would write things in there based on the, the technical advisors that would say, they don't teach us in medical school, but if somebody comes in and we suspect that they're bleeding internally, we don't wait for anything. We, we take a 32 French, we clip it into, uh, you know, we, we nick their, their belly with a scalpel. We clip it into the forceps and we go in and we drop the thing on the ground. If there's any, if it pinks up, if there's any blood in it, it hits the ground. We put a piece of tape over that nick and we send them upstairs because that's a, that's emergency room stuff, or that's a, a operating room stuff now they're bleeding internally so they would do that in on er and of course you know they again they don't teach that medical school but we'd have doctors go that's exactly what we do <laughs> because you know it's it, we're there to um expedite where people need to go the suture room where we're x-rayed whatever what do we need now because you know every second counts and somebody's been you know t-boned in a car accident or whatever 
So, um, so anyway, the look and the feel of the show was kind of establishing the pilot, but again, the first, you know, pilot in six episodes, they had a steady cam operator that kind of didn't want to do the job. And so that's where it was kind of fun to fall into that. And it was all on recommendations from, uh, you know, that the director, Vern uh, Gillum. Now, Steadicam is, it's not a, even in 94, it wasn't a new device. It was kind of developed in the 70s. A gentleman named Garrett Brown from uh, the Philadelphia area was a commercial director and cameraman. And he wanted to, he wanted to be able to float. And, you know, he looked at his desk lamp, you know, the articulating arm desk lamp with the, with this parallelograms and the springs. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, if you could kind of adopt that, like stick that to an exoskeleton, put the camera out at the end of it, it's like driving with a cup of coffee. You can hit a pretty big bump, but because you've now separated that from you now if you put a cup of coffee on your shoulder, as soon as you hit a bump, it's going everywhere. But if you get that away from you, I mean, you can hit a pretty big bump and, and t- it takes all the, the shake and the rattle out of it, smooths it out, makes it steady. So he you know, came up with this idea. He pitched it around to, you know, Panvision and all these different companies and a company called Cinema Products um, licensed it from him and became the sole manufacturer. And that's who I eventually, you know, that was late seventies. I became an employee like in 80, 86 when I graduated college and we rented two of them eventually. And I became the guy that I was so into the, the machine, you know, the machine before I even knew how to operate. And again, I thought I was too small to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I became the guy that took, took it took uh, responsibility for it when we got a call for it to be rented by somebody i would i would lay it all out i would i would make sure that everything went out came back and if there was a, p- a missing screw or something we would you know we would know um so it's 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 a mecha- it's mechanical it's not a lot of people look at it and they go where are the gyros because they think gyros spin up to keep right. it smooth but it literally is your ability to balance it four and a half pitching y'all and you also get this great thing because it's a given that pan and tilt are on a camera, but you also get Dutch. Now I use the shit out of Dutch in the, in the um, music video world because it just was cool as hell to do that. But you know, you, we had to use it very sparingly in, in narrative like ER just wasn't, there was no, we would do it maybe for a lock off shot of like a patient and like, you know, his bloody arm or something that would be like a specialty shot. But, you know, it's it's a little gimmicky. You don't want to overuse it or you know use it at all. So, um, but but that's the part of the gimbal or you know the 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 piece of of gear that allows you to pan until also you know has no prejudice on where you put it left right, which is bad too because you come around a corner and and your inertia will take you and you realize you're going down the hallway slightly sideways. Oh. So, but the better you get at it the better you get at noticing that I had, you know, little, those little spirit levels all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and I got pretty good. I mean, if you, you know, you, you guys watched my whatever 39, 40 episodes that, that I did. I mean, we, we, we got it down to a science and I had only been operating about five years at that time. Um, but God, what a, what a training ground. Um, and you know, a lot of shows have two cameras all the time. You have like a wide shot and a tight shot at the same time. ER truly was kind of a low budget show. They spent so much on that set that all the other departments had to, you know, and, and I don't know how much Clooney and Tony Edwards cost at the time, but I'm sure they weren't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was a lot of belt tightening, like our craft service, you know, a lot of shows that are very successful have really nice spread food and drink. We had like a block of cheese and crackers and water and <laughs> the, the, the first season. And so they, you know, we only had one camera at a time. So it was either steady cam or I'd be on, like I said, the hard camera. And, um, I didn't have a ton of experience um, with, they call them the wheels. It's pan and tilt, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's X and Y. And um, 
it's like a video game. And, and because I was pretty good at video games in high school, uh, I took to it pretty easily. So, so they would go, okay, let's get on a hard camera and do this. And we bring somebody down the hallway and there'd be like a complicated move. And the director of photography at the time, Richard was a previous camera operator and he was really good. So he would rehearse it and go, yeah, okay, we'll go to here. We'll go to here. Guy, you got that? Oh, yeah. And then I'd go, oh, fuck. But I got, <laughs> I got, I got pretty good pretty, pretty quickly because that was, I bet, you know, it's that or, you know, there's a thousand other guys sitting home out of work. So it's either get good at it. And then, of course, he would mess with me and he'd rehearse one. He'd go, Jesus Christ, I'm glad I'm not doing this. Guy, get in there. I'm going outside for a smoke. Um, so I'm like, oh, great. Thanks, Richard. Now everybody's going to be looking at me. But, you know, again, you get good at stuff. It's like it's like anything, being a magi- magician, you, you're sleight of hand, the more you do it. You know, race car drivers call it speed time. The, the, the more you drive, the faster you go. And so that was it was very similar to that. But we're doing like seven, eight, nine pages of the script every day, which, uh, you know, every episode was like eight days. So, you know, you, we get like it's 40, 43, 44 minutes of screen time that you're you're trying to fill but the scripts mm-hmm. especially on er because we would do like these scenes that would go so fast our scripts were easily like 60 pages so you know eight eight goes into 60 almost eight times so every day we'd average between seven and nine pages a day but it was doable because a lot of times we go this scene right here we can do as a wonder we can do it in one mm-hmm. one three-page scene we'd knock out it would come in at seven and by 9 30 we'd have three pages done you know so that was a good feeling um, yeah. You know, and, and then the show started to get written that way. It started to get written. The writers, you know, would come down and visit the set on the episodes, particularly the episodes they wrote. And they'd say, you know, it'd be cool is, you know, my next script, when we come down the hallway, I'll just have them duck in there and then we'll start the next scene. So they, everybody got really proficient with the style and it was written in that style. The actors were more than ready for it. Um, they'd watch me in rehearsal and they'd say, is that definitely where you're going to be? Because I'll delay my line or what I'll do is, if I'm here and I know the camera's here, I'll go, you know, you know, I'll say, um, you know, CBC cross check. So they throw me the look. So we knew to roll focus to them. So it became a very collaborative thing. Once we rehearsed a, a big one the assistant directors would have me walk it. We do a figure rehearsal, which is what I've been doing for the last half hour here. Um, we walk it and, and they'd say, okay, we'll have somebody wipe through with a, with a tray of samples. All our, you know, every, every actor has their own stand-in. So we always had six stand-ins that represented the, the main cast, at least in the first season. You know, again, we, you know, eventually added Gloria and Laura Ennis. So it kind of, you know, the, the, the footprint started to expand a little bit, but those stand-ins would go to wardrobe in the morning and get in the same scrubs that the actors were going to wear for obvious reasons. So we were like, well, let's utilize them. So they, they became my ringers. So we'd walk down the hallway and I'd say, Hey, you know, Roberto, when I, when you see my map box get to here, just terrorize me, come right by the, or, you know, you'd see them come at me. I'd be going down the hallway and you'd see them come at me and almost like dodging me like I'm a person, but we, we, it was all rehearsed. And, uh, you know, I called it the treachery factor. I go, if we don't have this treacherous feel, like I'm going to fall on my ass any second, then the, sh- the shots bland and it looks like we shot it on stage 11 in Burbank, California and not at Cook County in Chicago. So we always tried to strive for that. So that was the fun part is like a director would rehearse and then they would go talk to the actors or whatever. And I'd get together with the, with the background artists, my, all my, my uh, um, stand-ins who became, you know, 
a big part of the show and the assistant directors and we'd say, okay, when I get to here, let's do something here. When I get to here, come out of this doorway. Um, or we'd use people as, as panning devices. I'd get to here and I'd go, well, it's kind of dying here. If somebody came by there, they'd take me to this next scene. And then that would have me sitting pretty for this doorway. So that was always fun to kind of rehearse and, and nail those things too. But yeah, Steadicam is, uh, you know, there's, I don't think there's a TV show or a movie now that doesn't carry one full time. And there's, you know, through social media, I, I see all these Steadicam forums on Facebook and stuff. And there's thousands of names that I don't recognize anymore because it's the next generation coming up. And, you know, I kind of retired from the camera world to direct 20 years ago. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I haven't been in that world in a long time. And it, it's all gone from film to digital, which is a whole other aspect that um, mm -hmm. would be another hour of podcast to talk about. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. You, you kind of touched on this a little bit, though, like throughout your time on the show, the shots only seem to get more complex, more innovative, more ambitious. And so what was kind of your personal learning curve with the Steadicam itself? And how did your skills evolve with the experience to allow for more ambitious shots like that? Well, we knew that there was parts on the set that were really conducive to do it for me to back into a doorway and go change direction. So we would we would lean on that. We would a new director would come in and they you know they they knew what they wanted to do, but they weren't they they were very happy to leave fifty percent of the blocking to me and the ads and 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 the cameraman because the cameraman would watch me and go, "Can I put a light in this corner? Are you ever are you ever going to see this corner?" We'd bounce light to get a little more ambient because that mm -hmm. set, I mean, it was pretty much uh, designed with a real ceiling, and they would call mm -hmm. them down cans, which are lights. You know, so the, the boom operator would always have to go through those and, and avoid because the shadow would go right over the actors. So, and it, we couldn't turn them off because that's how the set was lit. So they'd always try and throw more light in there. So we found sweet spots. There was, a, if we had a long walk and talk, of course, I, you know, I had to get cute and I named one of them Tierra del Fuego and I named the other one, um, uh, what's the southernmost point of uh, Cape Horn? I, I just, I, I just shot in Cape, in Cape Town not that long ago. So it's Cape Horn and Tierra del Fuego, which is the southernmost points, right? So I'd go, if we go all the way around Tierra del Fuego and we land here, there's that great tea hallway that we like and we can throw people, you know, have people coming in and out of, uh, you know, uh, Kern Area 3 and, and you, know, you can have, a, we can put another gurney as we land, we can have a gurney come by in the background, even someone doing chest compression. So we all got good at the terminology and we knew, you know, how to, how to spice up the background because a lot of times we'd have, Almost every day we'd have 50 to 75 background artists who had, some had been on the show before and some had never seen the set before. And we kind of had to utilize them the right way because it, it sounds like a lot of people, but they, if, if one guy walks through and you've used him, we'd have them run down the hallway and come, you know, walk through 40 feet down if they could sneak around. So we, you know, that's where the background um, setting assistant directors earn their money. Um, no, I mean, I think that treachery factor, I used to say, you know, get close to me. Um, don't, don't touch me or don't touch the camera, obviously, but get close to me because, you know, the, the, that third dimension we're creating can't happen unless you're near me. I mean, I know everybody's respectful of, of breaking the equipment or, you know, tripping me or whatever, but it, it's not going to, it's, it's, we're wasting our time unless it looks scary. It was funny because over, you know, once the show got popular, we'd get cases of like energy bars or metrics. Remember metrics was those packets and, mm -hmm. and they'd send us stuff and 
and we put them in the shot. We got a call. We got a we got new gurneys. These really slick, like you know, Porsche style gurneys compared to the crappy ones that they rented at the beginning of the show. So we give it back to the rental house. We and we owned our own at that point because they were the company that manufactured those gurneys or those wheelchairs. Were like you know, our stuff is on the TV show ER that I'm going to show. So we got everyday cases and stuff would show up. One weekend they they changed out all the old. Um, you know, the bins where people, you know, you'd go suture kits and things were being, they changed them out for uh, these new ones that had like these outrigger wheels that stuck out. The other ones, all the wheels were sort of self-contained. So Monday morning I get there, I go, well, this is, this is kind of different because now, you know, I've rehear- I've memorized where I like things and, you know, I put, right. and all the drawers had like different colors on the other ones and now they had no colors. Cause I liked, I would, I would put like three red ones in a row. So out of my peripheral vision, I knew, okay, now I'm going to duck in or whatever, you know, a little things, um, mnemonic devices I would have for myself to know where to turn. And cause I'd run backwards down those hallways. And of course I did it without a spotter because it was just one more person to trip over. If, if they got tripped up, I'd step on them and it would be like a daisy chain. So anyway, of course, it was during rehearsal. Thank God I came around a corner and I stepped on one of those wheels and I went down immediately. And it was, it was crazy. The panic that set in, I'm like, oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. Just check. Can you just get the camera off of me and just check it? So, you know, we call Panavision. We go, we, everything seems fine, but we need another camera out here as soon as possible. Cause we, we took it, we took a hit. Um, but that was the only one I remember um, really being bad. I mean, there was a lot of like, stumbling and bouncing off of things or, or the map box, which has, which has the filters in it in the front, it was clipped on. So a lot of times if I hit it or I got jostled, it would hit the ground and we'd break a, a filter or whatever, but that was relatively inexpensive to uh, replace. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I got to know that set really well. So that, that helped. Um, and we, we knew that we, we knew where to steer the incoming directors who hadn't done the show yet into getting the most utilizing the most the, the most of the set and the parts that we liked and were we knew were conducive to putting a light or had like good hallways that we could get depth because in, in in film you don't want to ever you know filmmaking you don't ever want to block a scene up against the wall because then it's like well wh- why are we here we got all this we got you know paying for all these extras and and uh so you're always going for depth so you know i got good at the set and then that again like being a a sleight of hand magician you get you get better and better and your speed increases and you get more comfortable. Um, so yeah, so definitely, um, the, the ambitiousness with which we would put, uh, pitch ideas to directors got amped up quite a bit. And, and we touched on this already that you, you came in a little late. You started on the 10th episode of season one blizzard. Yeah. And this I, is, I thought it was earlier than that, but, but I guess not. Oh, yeah, um, but this is often cited as one of the defining ER episodes due to its frenetic pacing. Are there any specific memories of working on that first episode for you? Yeah, I, I finished the last three days, I think, with Danny Sackheim, who I kind of knew a little bit. And Mimi came down to the set to introduce herself and was walking. Like, you know, we would shoot over in, like, curtain area three, and, she, you know, the incoming directors would walk with their scripts because I was just part of your prep because they didn't do a lot of location scouting, like on a typical TV show, you're on a van and you're scouting and the directors would have, you know, hours between meetings. So they, you know, walk down to the set stage 11. So she introduced herself and said, you know, there's this kind of cool thing at the beginning where it's so quiet that um, I think um, 
you know, the, the, I can't remember who it was exactly, but they're on rollerblades. And I said, well, you know, what could be cool is I could, I could do their, you talk about the Dutch angle. I said, I could do their point yeah. of view. So whoever is, who that was, I believe it was Vanessa Marquez, rest in yeah, peace, was, yeah. rest yeah. in peace. She was a, a tortured individual, but, but a sweetheart of a lady. And I, I, uh, I you know, we all kind of know what happened there. But anyway, so I said, if, if Vanessa does, she may be a very proficient rollerblader, but she should play it where she's kind of like, you know, like a, a you know, a deer on, uh, on a, a ice rink and then we could we could have fun with that kind of like whoa and, and so i remember pitching that clearly to, to mimi and she was like yeah that's great we'll do her point of view then you can pull her back on the steady cam and then we can get on the long lens have her come around and come around the corner and we did like a hockey game kind of thing or you know with, with a waste paper basket and paper balls or something so i remember having fun i think we shot it in that order so we kind of started with the calm before the storm and then once it once it kicked in, I mean, I, it's it's all a blur now. But it was just, I remember there was a, kind of a rule and edict on the show that every fourth or fifth episode was a speed episode, which meant that you know there was a big set piece or there was a big car crash or a big building collapse. I mean, I don't know if they stuck to that 100, percent but that that was I remember that being kind of a rule that you can't have too many. Like, I mean, and also sweeps week that doesn't really exist anymore. But sweeps were like January, February. So the ones you would shoot in November, December, there was always some of those speed episodes because those are the ones where they would they would measure the rating in sweeps. So I remember Blizzard was a big sweeps episode. Mimi was one of the producers, so she I think she could pick and choose which episode she was going to get in in the order. Whereas as a freelance director, you're assigned an episode, and that these are the dates, and that's it. Um, and uh, but I remember it being really you know sort of the ultimate test of what what we could do with the steadicam and um you know wonders and and trying to tell the story in in the most frantic way possible and um it was great mimi and i became super close she took me on to do uh peacemaker whether i was her right hand for peacemaker and then deep impact so i've spent many many hours with mimi i you know still keep in touch with her a little bit these days through you know through instagram mostly it's, it's funny or the occasional dga meeting but I used to say to people, as a camera operator in the business, it's really rare that at the end of the day, the director comes up, kisses you on the lips, and says, I love you, and you have to wipe off the red lipstick. <laughs> I go, that, that's, that's my, my and Mimi's relationship. And um, you know, she, awesome. she was supportive when I, when I got the shot to direct. She took me to lunch and, and, and said, there's no good, good. If you got a shot to direct, you, do it. There's no picking and choosing, you know, you got a shot, you do it and whatever you need from me. And so she, she's been a big support. Um, yeah. My, in fact, my wife just worked with her on the morning show. She nice. filled it, filled in for the regular lady and she's a script supervisor. And so I sent messages back and forth to Mimi for a couple of days. So it's good. It's good to keep in touch. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and with Bl and with Blizzard, how much of that frenetic camera work was laid out for you by Mimi and the rest of the production team? And how much of it was your own style that you were able to bring into the episode? You know, it's been so long, it's hard to remember. I'd have to rewatch the episode, but um, it was a bit kind of a 50-50 thing. I mean, after three or four days, I think Mimi got sort of the, the, you know, the thumbs up behind my back that, you know, guy knows what he's doing. He's, he's here to, to help and it's going to be. 180 degrees different from, you know, Larry or whoever the other guy was. Um, and, uh, and we're going to have fun. And so 
you know, it was, it's a lot. And even as, you know, I've been directing for 20 something years now. I, I love to empower my, my operators and say, look, show me stuff, throw ideas towards me because odds are I'll like it. And then, you know, that way you, you know, you, you don't feel like you're, you know, just there as a, in, a, in a technician position, you're, you're telling the story, which is why for me, being a camera operator was the greatest training ground of being a director because, you know, I watched directors, the process and saw how sometimes you'd walk into a scene and you go, this is here. I'm going here. This comes in on that line. You turn, you go, you leave. And there's other times where I, I walk in and say, let's just rehearse it. Let's just hear the words campfire style everybody just if you're an actor stand here let's hear the dialogue because i have a crazy idea but i'm willing to throw it all out before i i block this thing let's just hear it because there may be a line that somebody and you'll see like an actor will show up for work in the morning on monday morning tired and they'll go to the you know like if it's a cop episode or uh, you know a, a set with, with where they're at they'll go to their naturally go to their desk and they'll sit there and they'll read their, their lines. And sometimes I'll go, that's exactly where you should be for this scene. So a lot of times if you open your mind and you're, and you're not rigid in your thought as a director. So I think Mimi was like that too. Mimi was like, you know, here's, here's what I want to see. And these three lines are important. But other than that, you know, let's just see how it lands. And a lot of times what was kind of cool is we would do a big master, like a big one on like a, like a 24 millimeter lens, which is pretty wide. Like, you know, as wide as you're looking at me, right? And then we would we would we would do a couple takes, and we'd go, you know, it's pretty good, but that line where he's where you know, Green leans over to Ross and says, you know, she's not going to make it. Uh, and you know, we always had somebody passing, you know, a suture kit in front of it. Let's do a version where we pull that background artist out, and we go in on a 35 or a 50. So now you're now you're here, right? So now you're you're a close up, right? Um, so we won't even tell the actors. So we'll go, okay, we'll go on one more time. And so I'd wink to the, my assistant, throw the 50 on. And we do the whole scene, but I would only photograph uh, Tony or George or, or both. I, I, would, I would kind of freelance between them. And then we do another take. And then those guys got hip, right? You know, Tony's a, a pretty skilled filmmaker himself. And, and George is as smart as they come. I'd say, I'd say, you know, I'd have some, I wouldn't tell the other actors wouldn't announce it. I just say, we're kind of ISOing you guys. And so they go, okay, cool. But we, you know, they kind of got the drill. And so we do another take and I do the opposite. So if I was on George for one line and, and whip pan over to Tony, I would do the opposite because once you get in the editing room, if you're making the same move and I'm in the same position, the editing of that becomes, it cuts like butter because you, you don't, you don't get the sense that you're cutting from here to here to here to here. It just kind of mm. flows. And so we do like 12 takes and the, you know, the, you know, people would start going, God, don't we have this? I mean, how many times are we going to do this? And we'd print like <laughs> two or three of the 24 millimeter ones. We'd print all the 50 millimeter ones because there may be a moment in there that we didn't even notice while we were shooting. But the editor, who's sort of an unbiased third party and is always looking at the footage fresh, anew, mm -hmm. they would go, yeah, there's this cool thing at the beginning where, you know, George looks down and got, you know, guy tilted to the, the blood on the thing and he, you know, put his glove on. It's a nice little moment in there. Why not? So um, we do 12 takes and, you know, with the director, assistant director, go, okay, moving on next scene. And everybody go, cool. You're great. Because normally you're so used to hearing, okay, we're going tighter. We're going to go into coverage and pieces of equipment being moved and lights coming in. And the ER was never that way. I mean, it would be 
in some of the slower scenes, maybe the surgery stuff, we would kind of treat it that way. But um, any of the any of the stuff on the main floor in stage eleven was was like you know always pretty frantic, frantic. But um, no, I think that, I think between Mimi and I, you know, obviously her and I had such a great relationship for the for the two seasons that we kind of uh, we didn't really even have to, uh, you know, I knew what she wanted to do and we look at the script and kind of agree that these are the important things. It's funny. One of the compliments that Chulak gave me in an interview once was guys best at, um, attribute isn't his eyes, it's his ears. Cause I literally would have to memorize dialogue lines of dialogue. Cause if I was, if I was oh, over yeah. one actor's shoulder on take one, and then I was over the other actor's shoulder on take two, not only is that bad for them because a lot of times they're leaning back to grab stuff, but editorially, you know, I would, so it would cut. I would need to be in the same spot, much like an actor hitting a mark. So I would, I would get pretty good at memorizing the dialogue, at least where I was, where I was supposed to be in space, not so much memorizing mm-hmm. the dialogue, but um, I became like the seventh cast member because I had to, <laughs> I had to hit my marks too. Um, mm-hmm. So that was great responsibility too. <laughs> so later on in season one, you worked on the episode Love's Labor Lost, long considered to by fans to be one of the best episodes, not just of ER, but really any television series, yeah. especially back from the 90s. Uh, what are your memories from that particular episode? And did you know how special of an episode that you all were filming? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I, I worked with Bradley on something. So it was good to, you know, early in my career, earlier, um, so it was good to see him again. I remember what a tremendous actor he was. And obviously the Wells camp fell in love with him because he went on to be, you know, the star West Wing and is still one of the top and also one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, so it was good to see Brad Woodford again. And um, we knew it was a good script. It was, you know, we we're all, out, you know, we would get the scripts a couple of days ahead and like you'd read them between takes or I'd go home and just read it, you know, the night before or the night I got it. And so everybody kind of agreed, wow, this is heavy. And the great thing about it is it, it's based on a true story. It was told to, uh, to Lance, oh. who was our, our tech advisor, but he also became obviously one of the writers of the show, Lance Gentile. It was told to Lance, and I believe in that episode, the doctor that it happened to played a nurse. I think he's in, we hmm. put him in the episode, so there's a male nurse. Hmm that it was the and maybe maybe he was a nurse For some reason i remember him being a doctor because it was based on him telling us you know the the true story of how it, it all went down i don't think it was quite as dramatic as we made it out to be but that's hollywood mm-hmm. that cinema and you know we kind of had to do it um i just remember being long hours we i mean you know mimi being one of the producers was able to kind of pull the trigger on going 14 15 hours but it was worth it there's a great gag that we did where, you know, our makeup artist, Werner, um, classic, you know, he, he was sort of almost retired. He had done like Planet of the Apes and V and he had these amazing credits. And his son, Rolf, was with us as well. Rolf and I became really good friends. Um, Werner had like an alien baby left over from V. So one, I don't know if that, I think it's on a gag reel somewhere. Um, we did a take where, they didn't tell Tony and they pulled the, the alien baby out. All right. We told Tony, but we didn't tell anybody else. So he pulls the alien baby out. You know, they're trying to get the baby. So in the middle of all this, you know, they, I think they had to tell me, they were like, don't cut the camera. Make, keep rolling. This is going to be a great gag. Cause you sort of needed those, those little um, bits of bits of humor. Cause it was a heavy, heavy script. 
the one thing I do remember about that is after we shot the whole thing, and I, I, I want to say we shot it in order. The I thought it was a brilliant piece of in, inspiration and, and from Mimi, and it's something I think I've stolen as a director, where you see him, you see Bradley with the baby in a rocking chair. Wow. And uh, he goes, he goes in and tells him, and we just back up, and you don't, you don't hear any of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I just got like chills. Wow. It, it's just in, it's in our retinas forever. Like just that visual. Yeah. And I think, it, I think it was written that way. Um, in that, you know, as an audience, we know what he's going to tell them. There's no, it's on the nose. It's expositional dialogue. But Mimi wanted to just keep, we, so we had to find that perfect spot in that hallway, which is on another mm -hmm. stage. That wasn't our classic stage. That was like where we had all the OR stuff, like stage four mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, anyway, so we found like the perfect spot to back up and just dolly back and fade to black. And um, I remember that being a heavy moment at, after all the, you know, the crap hitting, hitting the fan for the previous, whatever, six or seven days of shooting that show. Also, Amy uh, Aquino was in that episode, who's, who's just a, just a, as good an actor as, as, they, as there is. I'm looking forward to she's She's one of the regulars on Bosch, and that new season is about to start, so I'm stoked about that. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was I think we all kind of knew there's, there's something special here, and, and um, we'll see. Um, and I think uh, Colleen, I think she had knew those guys from China Beach. Because a lot like John and Mimi and a lot of the people at um, the pre the show they did before four ER was China Beach, so that's where like Mark Helgenberger um, a lot we got a lot of uh, China Beach people Robert um, oh God what's his name anyway we got we had a lot of the the the, the China Beach all stars come and day play that first couple seasons yeah the the cast the the, the guest cast was always a treat. Um, it was always fun to like look at the call sheet and go, holy shit, Steve Franken's going to work today. You know, who's like a you know, legendary comedy actor and being able to pull him aside and talk to him. We had an actor, he was in his 80s and his name was Michael Fox. And we all start talking, you know, he's laying in a gurney and we're talking to him. And he goes, you know, the reason, you know, I'm the reason Michael J. Fox has to use the J because there can there, <laughs> in SAG, you can't have two Michael J. Foxes. He goes, he had to add, when he went to join SAG, he, he, they said there's already a Michael Fox. And he's like, what? And he goes, all right, I'll add my middle initial. <laughs> but there was all these great stories like that every day with, with guest cast. Um, and I, I, you know, I still keep in touch with a lot of the, the cast, um, just the, even the guests. Alana Ubach is an old friend from a couple things. God, we could talk about that, you know, that for hours as well. Anyway, enough of that. So jumping ahead in the timeline just a little bit, um, you were behind the camera for one of the most unique episodes uh, with guest star Ewan McGregor, uh, season three's The Long Way Around. How did your process have to change when you're filming virtually all of those scenes in one kind of often cramped location? Well, it was, it was in Chicago, a real convenience store that we took over. That was interesting because I had already moved on to, um, you know, uh, my, my two years of, of being a full-time member of the crew I'd moved on. But again, keeping in touch with Chris Chulak who directed that episode, they'd always call me when they did Chicago units. Every six to eight weeks they would do a Chicago unit where they would some of the I mean you saw all the stuff down any L train tracks mm -hmm. or Michigan Avenue, or whatever. So they would call me if I was available, I'd I'd do it. I'd I'd send my steady cam ahead to Chicago and I'd fly there and meet everybody and, and um 
and you know, because that was a lot of fun too. You know, doing three, four, five scenes a day from three, four, five different episodes with different directors. Then you go back to the hotel at night and you know, drink and eat, and it was a lot of fun. That's where I, you know, basically twisted their arms to let me become a director. Um, was over drinks and, and dinner and just saying, look, you guys know I want to direct one day. Yeah, yeah. Because I almost came back for season three if they were going to let me direct, and they just they 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 couldn't commit to it, and they said, but look, we're going to do more stuff. We got we got all these great scripts and we, we did one in 98 that didn't go, but they were going to let me direct. And then in 99, they called me and said, we're doing one about the president and his staff in the white house. We're doing one about cops and firemen and paramedics in New York. You know, we kind of know that's where I got my start as a director. But um, so when they called me, so we're doing an entire episode. Um, we, they, the, the show found out that Ewan McGregor was a big fan. So they, they, and a lot of the writers, John Wells, et cetera, are all, were clients of CAA. So they, they could easily get to his agent. They called his agent and said, look, if we write him in an episode that's unique to him, would he come and do it? And they, they were like, absolutely. And so over a weekend, they wrote Long Way Around and they came up with the whole idea of him being a cousin from Scotland who came to visit his Chicago cousin. They just said, here's the funny story is they said he has to be, there's an out date. He absolutely has to be back in England by a certain date because he's pre-committed to a movie. And so, mm-hmm. so I had heard about this. And so like over dinner and drinks or back at the Ritz Carlton lobby bar or whatever. Um, one of the most charming guys in the world, by the way, um, I said, you and what, what's this movie you're going to do? He goes, I'm going to play Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I was like, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, he's fucking with me. <laughs> and I, I go, I go, I go, I, in flashbacks. He goes, well, kind of the whole movie is basically, you know, the, the prequels of the Star Wars. I go, get the, come on. <laughs> he, 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 he it's, I always tell the story. One of the first shots we did with him is when he's like holding up the, the, the um, person at the register and then the shop, you know, the proprietor comes out of the back and he spins and he puts the gun up and says, you know, lay down old man or whatever he says. And I was in a handheld camera position and he spun, he put the, the gun right exactly where we you know rehearsed it a few times nailed it and i got chills as a camera operator and i just said to chulak after that thing i go this guy's a fucking movie star and you know i i, I was already tra- <laughs> train spotting in shallow grave i was already a big fan of um but that was fun because they said we're gonna do well i think they have a day back in la that they have to they need you in for and i was off to something else anyway but they said come and do this It'd be like six or seven days freezing this was january but that's the only time we had you in um mm-hmm. so yeah so it was, it was fun to kind of come and, and and get back in that world but yeah i mean the the we could move some of the the product shelving but not not a lot but we had a thing where like like something somebody falls onto a pinball machine out of the ceiling mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So we had to rig all that stuff and um it wasn't easy but you know we to chris's credit we did a lot of it handheld so you're able to kind of, you know, eliminate the dolly, eliminate tripods, eliminate. I think, I mean, obviously I had the steady cam there, but I don't think we did that much moving and grooving because once things landed, you know, once, you know, the, the tracheotomy stuff happened and all that, uh, you know, we were kind of stuck in there um, and it was warm. So everybody wanted to be inside. <laughs> no, it's funny. One of the, one of the <laughs> actors in that Marisol Nichols, I've kept in touch with a little bit. I cast her in Alias when I directed that episode of Alias. Um, Curry Graham, I keep in touch with a little bit through social media. Great actor. Um, I've tried to cast him on other stuff since then. 
But um, it's funny how that world, you know, you, you, you have this, this moment with these people for a day or two, three days, four days, maybe. You know, Curry was from L.A., so he was at the hotel with us and Marisol as well. So we all kind of, you know, went as a group to dinner. So, you know, everybody go up in your room, shower, meet down in the lobby. We'll take a couple cabs over to, you know, whatever, Rosebud or whatever. So anyway, that's that's my memory of that. I remember having a great time on that. And the interesting thing is I met my wife on that episode because she, really? she was the script supervisor. She had already moved to New York full time, but she got her start in Chicago. And whenever ER would come to Chicago, they would just call her automatically. She still had her 312 number, I guess, right? So they never, they just assumed she was in Chicago. So she flew back and would crash on her mom's couch, right? So so we became friends on that in 97, because that was like January of 97. Flash forward to like April of 99, I come to do the pilot with Chris Chulak of Third Watch in New York. And we have like a kickoff party and Lori comes up to me and I go, what are you doing here? Why are you in Chicago? She goes, no, I live here. So we kind of became a couple in, in like in April of 99. And there you go. The rest is history. <laughs> That's wonderful. Following your time on ER, you went on to work on to other major productions like Deep Impact, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, Austin Powers, and probably most notably Titanic. Right among many others. Uh, so what lessons did you take from your experience on year one working on such large scale, scale productions, especially something as grandiose as Titanic? Yeah, that was interesting. I, uh, I think I want to say I was doing Peacemaker. So I was in Eastern Europe and I had an agent at the time who, who, you know, I guess I had AOL and she sent me a message and said, look there. And I knew about Titanic. My good friend of mine, Jimmy Miro, was the main camera operator who was James Cameron's right hand. Cause he did like true lies and I think he did T2. And um, they said, you know, he, she goes, I just got a call from Jimmy. They're doing all this, all these scenes where the, they're going to sink the boat. There's only t- so many times they can sink it. So Cameron said, get another steady cam operator down here, get another four camera operators because it, when this thing falls apart, we're not rebuilding it. And there's only so many times they can sink it. It was all computer controlled you want to go down and do it? Here's the dates. I said, yeah, I mean, I'll just be getting home from Europe because Peacemaker was like four weeks in New York and then three months in like Macedonia and Bratislava. And yeah, it's crazy. And so I said, yeah, I, you know, my, I don't know how long it's going to take my gear to get back from Europe, but it, and it all worked out and they picked up my gear and, and took it down to Rosarito beach. I, I think they drove it down and I flew with a bunch of stuntmen from Burbank airport. Um, no, it was, it was cool because I got down there and, you know, it's a feature film. So I'm used to, at least on ER, it was seven to nine pages a day. I mean, they, they'd be lucky if they did like three, four, five eighths of a page a day. It's just the nature of wow. feature oh, wow. films. And, you know, they had already done the whole Nova Scotia unit. So in between setups and stuff, and I, I'd met Cameron earlier in my career. I didn't know him well. But um, we're sitting there, we're, we're almost getting ready to go to lunch, which means we've, we've already been there six hours. We haven't rolled the camera once, just rehearsing and whatever it was. So Cameron leans over to me and he goes, by about this time on ER, you guys have already shot like, what, two, three pages? I go, four or five. He's like, fuck, I just don't know how you do the pace of TV. He just, <laughs> so I knew, I knew that he knew that I was, had done ER. And they warmed him up, you know, we're bringing down guy. He just come, came off the Peacemaker and, and um, it's funny because he went on to do Dark Angel not too long after that, I think, because that would have been 96. So he went on to produce and, and direct some of Dark Angel. So he, he got into the TV thing. But at the time, he was like blown away by the pace. I was just 
describe a, a typical day on ER. So it was kind of fun. Russell Carpenter, you know, cameraman, um, kept in touch with him for years. Um, but it was crazy. I mean, you know, I heard all the stories about them in Nova Scotia. They pissed off the caterer and the guy put PCP in their lobster <laughs> bisque. And so everybody was tripping. On it. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Oh Go- Google that. The Nova Scotia case. The guy, they, they proved that he, he dosed their, their lobster biscuit. And the guy went to jail. And that's like, that's like attempted murder. Cause you know, you can't put drugs in people's food, but that, you know, it gives you an idea of, of how, uh, <laughs> how you can piss somebody, the wrong person off. Um, so I heard all those stories and, you know, a lot of the camera guys I knew already. So I think I was down there about three weeks. And they wanted me to stay longer, but I had, there was something I was doing at the end of 96. I couldn't do it. It would have been October of 96. I had already committed to doing it because I was, I think I was supposed to be down there like two weeks, turned into three. But it was, uh, it was interesting. It was, you know, just over the border of Mexico. And this, you know, this, they, they literally built a, a half of the ship, the facade of it, um, that like was on the water. And then all this, all this, the, you know, the staterooms and, and ballrooms and dining rooms and all that stuff were all built on stages. It's crazy because we'd sink the boat and all the furniture and all the teacups and plates and everything would start to float and then they'd all sink. And then they would, you know, they'd say, okay, you know, cut, 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 let's move on and, or, you know, let's reset. They'd bring the, everything's on cables. They'd bring it back up and the water would all drain out of it. And it was, you know, Pacific salt water right off the ocean pumped in. So it was, all, it was freezing cold too. We we're all in dry suits, but they'd say, okay, let's reset. And they, this team of like a hundred little Mexican guys would come in, clear out everything wet to one side or off the set. And they bring in dry everything with towels and, and put in a whole new set of furniture. And, but again, that, that's the reason why they brought me down there was they, they knew there was only so many times they could do it. And the set would just start to deteriorate to the point where the cables would just start sna- not snapping, but pulling stuff. And it just, they would have to, rap but uh yeah what a great experience i mean at the time all i knew was that it was the the world's most expensive movie ever made and there was a really cute english girl named kate winslet that was bouncing around <laughs> and leo was like 19 and he was just like a slacker typical 19 he'd be like oh god and they go okay ready and action and he'd get he became jack pretty funny and I, you know, I knew wow. him, I knew him from Gilbert Grape. I was a big fan of how great he was in Gilbert Grape. So anyway, crazy. As a side question too, did you get to with with Deep Impact? Did you get to shoot any scenes with Laura Ennis? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, totally. Well, you know, she got her and Mimi were close friends from ER. We had other actors, I think, that floated in there from ER again, like the China Beach going on the ER thing. But yeah, Laura and I got got to be pretty good friends. I, I run into her every now and again at the DJ meeting. Um, but uh, yeah, cause that whole, the newsroom set, the MSNBC set or whatever that was in Hollywood. Um, we shot, oh, okay. we shot Hollywood sets. Then we went to the East coast and did, um, the Hamptons and, and DC and Baltimore. Well, not, not so much Baltimore, DC and Virginia. And then when we came back, we went to the same stages, but they had already wrapped those sets and they built uh, a lot of the outer space stuff. And then Paramount was the surface of the crater or the, the meteor. Um, you know, Ron Eldard obviously was another one of those people that, you know, we get, became, I got a great Ron Eldard story. When we started, or at least when I started on ER, I had the biggest crush on both Juliana and Sherry. And 
and Juliana had a boyfriend in New York. So that was like, uh, and, and, and Juliana had a boyfriend in New York and he was a big Broadway actor we heard. So I'm like, ah, probably a jerk. And so <laughs> Ron came to visit one time, I think. And, uh, and he was a nice guy. And I was like, Hey, nice to meet you. I didn't know any of his work. And then they cast him as Shep. And within a couple of days, I was like, this, this guy's the coolest guy ever. And, and uh, so the rest is history because he went on, it went on to do a, uh, Deep impact with us, but um, but yeah, Ron Ron is one of those actors that I have no idea why he's not hugely wildly successful. He's one of those actors I'll mention to other actors; uh, they know him, but a lot of filmmakers don't even know who he is. And he's one of the one of the most skilled, nicest guys in the business. But uh, yeah, yeah, Laura was was uh, yeah, that was a huge ninety. I think it was like ninety days of shooting. Wow. Oh, wow. Big. It was cool. Robert Duvall. I mean, there was some Morgan Freeman. You know, I got close to Morgan Freeman. And this was fun stuff. So you got to go back to ER in 2001, like you mentioned, to direct in season seven right. as the episode Witch Hunt. Yep. Um, what was it like for you returning to the show after some time away? And how did your perspective change on things going from camera operator to director in that kind of environment? Well, the, cool, the good thing is by that time, I mean, by the end of season one, the show had its rhythms and we knew, you know, you could estimate how long the scene was going to take to shoot. There was no X factor. So by the time I got to season seven, you know, a lot of new cast members, um, George was gone by then. Um, I got a good George and Juliana in Seattle story too. Um, I can't forget to tell you that one, but anyway, um, this had a rhythm going. The interesting thing was, Witch Hunt was episode 151 and episode 150 Jonathan Kaplan directed. It was a big one where there was a big uh, train crash, train wreck. Mm -hmm. And so when I started shooting, you know, typical episodes, eight days, I think Jonathan had 10 or 11 days. So when I started shooting, they were still on location out in a town called Fillmore, which is, you know, like a little over an hour outside of the city, but it's train tracks that you can shoot on. So a lot of people go out there and shoot. So the, my first two or three days, I was with like sort of the, the, the second, like um, they call it the B unit, which is whenever shows overlapped. And they overlap quite often in TV where you'll have a day, one episode finishing, another one will start just to keep you on schedule. So the first two or three days I had like, uh, you know, it was all perfectly capable and good people, um, but it wasn't the it wasn't the first unit. They were still out on location. Um but uh, it was a good script. I, you know, keep in touch with Scott Gemmell a little bit there. You know, that Laura Ennis and Elizabeth Mitchell were one of the main storylines. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it was fun. It was like coming, it was like going off to college and coming back um, and we're in seeing your family again. Cause it was a lot of the same people. It was probably 75% of the same crew. You know, Tony was kind of uh, not, they were writing him a lot lighter. I think at the time, I think that's when they were playing the storyline out where he, he, they knew he had a tumor. Eric was only in a few scenes. Jules was gone by then. Sherry was gone by then, I think. Um, but it was good. I mean, I thought, I thought, you know, it was, by the time they got to episode 150, it was a little bit, I mean, like I said, the advantage of it was like the show, we knew the rhythms, the timing, the pacing, mm -hmm. but it, it changed. I mean, it was definitely like coming back to, uh, um, you know, like they they moved all the furniture out of your room, and um, and <laughs> there was a new guy living in your room. But you know that was fine. I mean, but, you know, it was 
I have great memories of it. I'm glad I, I'm glad I got the shot to do it. That was one of my things when, when I got to do, you know, became a, a director on third watch, I said, you know, I, I definitely want to get a shot. And, you know, at that time we didn't, I mean, from season to season, they didn't know if they were going to keep going. Who knew 15 years, right? 15 seasons. But at the time it was like this, this, you know, at any moment they could announce that that, that was going to be the last season. So it was, I wanted to do one in the run of the show. And so they, you know, they, they, they definitely honored my request. So it was fun to do. Um, but I was kind of, at that time I was kind of living full-time in New York on third watch because I was a co-producer, I think. So, um, so I could never really commit to doing any more than that. And I shadowed Tommy Shlami on West Wing, but I never really got a shot to do West Wing. And honestly, it really wasn't, you know, wasn't, it didn't look as much fun as doing third watch. So I was, I was really happy to go back to New York at the time. But no, my, my Juliana and, and, uh, and George story, oh, yeah. I think I was finishing season one or two. I was in New York and I got a call from John Wells and, and whoever, and they said, here's some dates. Are you available? Can you fly up to Seattle, you know, uh, hire an assistant cameraman, you and your steady cam, we need you for a day. You fly up on like Wednesday, shoot Thursday, fly home on Friday. I was like, yeah, I'm available to do it. So then, you know, I called the cameraman, Richard. I go, what's going on? He goes, well, Juliana's going to finish the, finish the season or the, nobody has these pages. The script, these pages, the scene was written, but nobody has the pages. Mm-hmm. He goes, I can't even show them to you, but basically how they're going to write Juliana out of the show is she moves to Seattle to be with Clooney, to be with Raw. And we have Clooney for a day. He's doing the perfect storm. So he had like a big beard. Mm-hmm. And so they said, we have him for a day. And the Warner Brothers jet is going to fly him up. He's going to do this scene where he's like out cleaning his boat on a pier somewhere. Juliana gets out of a cab. She goes to the back and she basically says, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to live with you full time. And I can't remember exactly when it was. It must have been like 99 or two. My, it was definitely 2000, 2001. And so uh, I go, oh, that'll be cool. So, you know, I hadn't seen George in a while and, or Jules. So it was, it was cool to kind of shoot that. And I think we, we shot super fast. And uh, I think it was a steady cam thing. She goes up, knocks on the door, goes around back. I follow her, see a guy mm-hmm. cleaning out his boat. I can't remember what the scene was now, but wrapped everything up, went to dinner and flew back home the next day. It was like I was in and out of there in like, you know, 48 hours. But that, that was fun to be part of that scene, you know, because the, yeah. because everybody back in LA that's working on the show had no idea. They 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 didn't know. They had no idea so until they saw the episode cut together and on the air. They didn't know that that, that that's how that episode it was a false ending written into the script that everybody got because they didn't want to you know. And this is you know the kind of the beginnings of maybe social networking and fan vlogs and blogs and all that so AOL chat groups and they, they thought God if one person leaked this idea will we'll blow the whole surprise and nobody did which which I guess is a testament to how well they kept it secret definitely yeah so you had mentioned that you you know have a lot of experience directing on the show Third Watch uh, what, when you also got to direct the Third Watch half of the Third Watch slash ER crossover epi- crossover with the episode Unleashed yep what was that experience like directing an episode that involved the ER universe, but in the third watch formula? Well, it was cool because, you know, Sherry came to New York. Um, you know, obviously we were old friends from, uh, you know, the, the first two seasons. Um, and it was, it was well-written and it was kind of a cool idea and concept. And, and uh, 
Um, um, Kathleen Wilhoy and I were old friends from the show as well. She's, she's as, again, one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with and why she isn't wildly, you know, more successful or, you know, popular is a mystery to me. Um, I lobbied hard to do that because I, you know, I was a co-producer at the time and I said, look, nobody knows this ER world better than me. That's part of third watch in New York. So I lobbied hard. I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to get to do that episode, but they, they let me do it. We had some overlap where the ER, my, my friend Nelson McCormick directed the ER portion of it. I think he came to New York to do, yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember how it overlapped, but the, the B story was pretty cool. Well, it wasn't even the B story. It was um, Bosco finding out that the little girl was kidnapped. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a good script. I was, I was lucky to... Again, I thought they were going to go, yeah, we already got somebody lined up. I, you know, I didn't know, I can't, and I can't remember really, but um, I definitely lobbied hard for it and uh, worked, it worked out good. I, um, I was proud of that episode. Um, good stuff. You know, Jason Wiles and I are good friends, and I thought he, you know, again, acted his ass off and did a great job with it. But, the, but it was fun. I knew, you know, again, that at any moment, this could be ER's last thing, because, I mean, by that time, I think they had been on the air for like eight or nine seasons. So it was like, you never know. I mean, it was a different time, but uh, yeah, I'm glad I got to do that one. So uh, we'd previously, we've previously interviewed uh, Ellen Crawford and she told us a story about you receiving some kind of personal commendation from the inventor of the Steadicam for your contributions to advancing the technology. Can you expand on that and talk a little bit about what that meant to you? Yeah, it was, it was pretty unofficial. I mean, again, this was the early days of AOL and, um, Garrett, I knew Garrett had started watching the show because um, he, somebody had told me. His, and his son was starting his career as a cameraman and moved to L.A. And his son came to visit me on set. I'd never met him before, but he came walking through the door. I, you know, I, I made sure they had a pass for him at the front gate because he was a fan of the show as well. And, and uh, it's funny, he walk, came walking through the door, and, and I'd never met him before, but I uh, – I took one look at him and, I, and he looked like his dad. I go, I know who you are. He goes, I know who you are. Of course, <laughs> I had a Steadicam vest on and my, you know, my headband and all that stuff. Um, but no, I think it was pretty unofficial. Garrett sent me a, a note on AOL and just said, you know, this is, this is exactly, I've been watching the episodes. This is exactly why this machine exists for this kind of narrative storytelling. He goes, there's people I've known my whole life who who know I invented the Steadicam and they don't quite know what it does. But now I say, do you ever watch ER? And they go, yeah. And he goes, that's what Steadicam does. And I, and, and I, he just said, thank you for, you know, for kind of doing, doing the right or finding the right ways to utilize what it, it's good at. And, you know, it's like, you know, I used to joke around, it's like Chuck Yeager telling you you're a good pilot or Eddie Van Halen saying, Hey, you're a good guitar player. So I printed it out and we in the craft service area, we had a, uh, um, a refrigerator and I put it on, you know, some magnets so everybody could see. I was pretty proud of that, but it was good. I mean, you know, it, it's so funny because at the end of it, he goes, I would just caution you to slow it down every now and again. And in the quiet moments, and I, he was right. I mean, so it was funny because when we came back for season two, you know, they asked me how I could, what I thought I could do to improve, even though everybody was happy with what we did in season one. And I said, you know, slow it down in the quiet moments. Let me let me use longer lenses because you know we'd always put the 24 on. And the thing with a with a wide angle lens is it's very unforgiving with the roll axis. The roll axis because you, you're so much horizon. So when you put like a 35 on, you have less 
information on the screen. And it's just a little more cinematic. So we went with like slightly longer lenses and we slowed it down when we needed to. We went on the hard camera maybe a little more than in the previous seasons where if they just said, well, they just move the steady cam over here and I'd stand there for, you know, two minute scene. At a certain point I was able to go, well, this, this is a hard camera kind of shot. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of it. The other great thing was they interviewed Richard for um, the cameraman for a magazine. And they said, you know, ER has a very distinct look and, um, and the way it moves is there some kind of new state of the art camera you're using. And he just answered him with, no, I have a state of the art operator. I always thought that was a pretty cool way to put it. Um, no, it was great. We, 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 I was given responsibility and, and the keys to the Porsche. And um, I, I don't think I ever crashed it too bad. And when I did, it was in the pursuit of, of doing, um, of making it more cinematic, more frantic, more treacherous, whatever you want to term you want to use. So you're kind of one of the the unsung heroes of the series, kind of a name that casual fans may not immediately recognize, but somebody who played a critical role in making the show kind of as memorable and iconic as it was. What might be some other names that fans might not immediately recognize, but were similarly crucial to the show's success? You know, the, the thing in TV is, you know, you move so fast that a lot of people don't get credit for how, like the makeup department, you know, all those scars, all that blood, uh, the props department, they had to reset. So if we had an actor come in bloody and the sheets were bloody and they go, okay, let's cut, let's do it again. We had to pull that actor off. We had to rip those sheets off, put them in a, in a bin, re, you know, resheet the, the gurney, clean them up. Cause a lot of times, you know, the gauze pads would get all, you know, we'd clean them up. So for the prop department, there was, there was Rick Kearns and Rick Latimade, Beverly, um, Hadley started the show. Um, and you know, the crew of people, um, aside from them. And then Werner was the, the, the key, like sort of prosthetic guy and his son, Rolf w- was with him along the way. But those kind of the people that reset things really fast, I think, um, don't, didn't get enough credit for what they did. Um, the other, the other great thing was a lot of times if Clooney didn't have his lines memorized, he would come in and write them on the sheets or he'd write them on a chart. If you have, if you want, when you rewatch the show, which I know you guys do, um, you'll see a lot, a lot of times he'll, he'll look down at a chart. He, he always used to do this little thing where he'd look down at charts. But of course, when they reset the sheets, he'd go, ah, where are those sheets? Like with George, we had to, they're all bloody. He's like, <laughs> but again, George is such a good actor that nobody ever noticed. And, and, uh, it was sort of part of his process. Um, he liked he liked sort of the, the little bit of that not not having it slick and memorized. So that was that you know whereas like someone like Tony or Eric or even Noah were um I think they were a little more um they it's just a different style. Right. I think out of all the episodes we've watched thus far, I think we've only managed to catch Clooney one time with his notes. We've only managed, which, which speaks to your talent too, of being able to hide that stuff too, because there's only been one time where we could actually see the sheet that he was reading from. Yeah. So. I mean, he would, he was smart. He wouldn't use, we, we always get these things called sides, which are like miniature versions of the scenes we're going to shoot that day. They're like eight inch by five inch or something. And a lot of times you'll see somebody walking away in a scene and you'll go, fuck, I see his sides in his back pocket. Cause we always put them in our back pocket. So to George's credit, he would literally write it or he would ask the props people to bring him like a clipboard ahead of time and he would write his lines. 
I mean, look, he didn't do it all the time. It was just a lot, of, I guess, a lot of Monday mornings when, you know, when you're a big TV star, you know, you have a, you have very full weekends. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we uh, had a few fan questions uh, that were submitted for you. Uh, people who wanted to know a little bit more about the show. Uh, so the first one we have for you is in shooting a scene, what is the main kind of relationship between the director and the camera operator? Well, it's interesting. I have a great, you know, unique perspective on that because for all those years I was a camera operator wanting to be a director, knew I was someday going to be a director, you know, hopefully, um, and sort of training to be a director. You know, I, I would, I would spy on everything that the director and the actors would talk. Cause that was the one part that of the equation, even though I take an acting classes, I didn't really know how to talk to actors to get cause and effect. So I would, I would listen to every director's process because technically like what lenses and where to put the camera that all came kind of second nature to me because that's what i got paid to do for 12 years right 88 89 to 2000 um so no i mean i think now as a director again i kind of touched on this a little bit i always empower my operators to, to show me stuff um don't be afraid you'll never get shot down and if, and if i don't want you to do that thing that you're pitching me there's probably a reason for it either we're going to do it later or it's a little too heavy handed, you know, everybody has a different take on how they read a scene, you know, and how it should be interpreted. You know, some, some camera operators will go, let me start on the light switch. And when he flips it, I'll pan over to him. And I'm like, but then it becomes a scene about a light switch. I'd rather be with my, with my man. And, and, but I like that idea. And we're going to use that. Like when she, you know, in that scene where she breaks the vase over his head, we're going to start on the vase. And, she, and you know, oh, cool. Let's save it for that. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I always liked, and you know, like Mimi and Chulak, and you know, I can name some other directors in my career as a camera operator that really wanted my input. Um, and they would take me with them, like they would go on to other shows, and they would insist. I mean, when Mimi got Peacemaker, I remember her coming to work one morning and saying, "I need to talk to you," and I'm like, "Oh shit!" You know, what did I do? <laughs> and you know, we, you can walk the perimeter of the stage. There's like a four foot um, fire that you can't put any equipment in. The, you know, the fire department will mm -hmm. come and check. And so you walk the stage. A lot of actors do that between scenes to run their lines. So we walk the perimeter. She goes, I was on a conference call last night with George Clooney and Steven Spielberg. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? And she goes, and my agent, and I'm going to direct this movie called The Peacemaker. And it's funny because I had read in the trades that George was, they were, they were circling this, you know, TV star, George Clooney to play, to be the lead of Peacemaker. We were making fun of it, calling it, you know, Pacemaker and um, <laughs> Spacemaker. I go, yeah, it's about those refrigerators that or it's about those uh, microwaves you put on the counter. Spacemaker, ah, fuck you guy. And of course the set, you know, so he gets the part, maybe gets the gig to direct it based on Spielberg loving her ER episodes. And she, and she said, and I'm not doing it without you. You got to come with me. And I'm like, I'm hundred percent. I'm there. Of course I walk back on the set and I go, you know, Peacemaker is going to be a great movie. Nobody fucking make fun of it anymore. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's a testament to how a camera operator can become the extension of the director's thought. Because again, much like, you know, any, any business or job or vocation where people work together as partners, cops, for instance, you kind of, there's things that you don't even have to say to each other. You know, I'll look at, you know, I would look at someone like Mimi or Tulak or any of the directors again, and I'd say, 
you know, so then they're looking at it the way I'm looking at, it, which is if we're here, you get this cool perspective and then we'll bring that out. Yeah. If we bring him in on that. We'll get that line on camera. We can get that tighter and that'll turn into her coverage at the gurney and I'll push in with the dolly. So there's sort of, you, you know, you, you work all this stuff out in rehearsal because you want to get the actors off the set in the hair, makeup wardrobe as fast as possible. So they don't have to, so we're not waiting for them while we light, you know, there's a sort of a process of block light rehearse shoot. ER was a little, you know, a little more, um, it was a little different in that a lot of times they just had to put scrubs on. Clooney didn't necessarily do any makeup. Hair was, you know, Waldo, his guy would squirt a little uh, hairspray in his hand and go like this and, okay, get in there. That was, that was it. <laughs> I remember Clooney, they always had to have fresh scrub tops from him for him because in between takes, he would go out and shoot baskets in the, in the parking lot, you know, in our, in our little area by our stage. And he would come back mm-hmm. in soaking wet. He'd just rip one off and put a new one on. It was fun. To, I was saying to somebody, I just watched the Friends uh, thing on HBO Max, the reunion. Their first season, they were on the stage next to us. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we'd go out, you know, get off the stage for a second, take a break. And all, all that, the six of them would go out, would be in the, in the alleyway between stage 11 and their stage 10, I guess. And so and Clooney knew them all because they're all young Hollywood at the time. So, um, so at any point in 1994 to 95, you could walk through between stage 10 and 11 and see a cast of friends and the cast, pretty much the whole cast of ER out there just, you know, talking and hanging out. And they eventually moved to the back in season two where, um, uh, whatever the, the, the thing with John Stamos and the Olsen twins, they got their old stage. Oh, uh, full house. Full house. They got their old stages when they moved out, which had really like pimped out, um, dressing room. So they got, they got a better stage. Hmm. So they moved to the back of stage 24. Anyway. Um, on, on a technical note, were there any particular scenes that you, uh, really loved shooting or were particularly proud of? Yeah. I mean, we kind of perfected that whole, bring them down the hallway, bring them into, to, uh, you know, to the ER. We had the yellow one and the green one, ER1, ER2, mm-hmm. or um, I can't remember what we call them now. Anytime we trauma one, trauma, trauma two. one, trauma two, yellow and green. And so we would, we would, anytime we floated around and, and we're kind of telling the story in one shot and it all worked out where, you know, again, the actors knew where I was going to be. I knew where they were going to be. And I would put like, you know, um, any kind of uh, medical equipment in the foreground, you know, uh, uh, IV bags, IV poles, and then finding that perfect spot. We, we used to joke around when we, we we would rehearse and we'd go, yeah, it'd be great. But there's that one line when, you know, when Morgan Stern comes through the door and he always used to say something like, you know, give me the bullet. There, there's that one line that we're not quite, I don't know how we're going to do it unless I really slow down through here or we bring him in later. And so as a joke, I remember one time coming around and, and being, you know, in position here and then Morgan Stern comes in off camera. And so I just whip hand over to the door, you know, like halfway through the line, as soon as I heard him, you know, well, give me the bullet. I bring him in and I, I whip pan, find him and then bring him to the rest of the group. And he joined the fold and we just continued the circle. I kind of did it as a joke, you know, as like a, how are we going to get everybody's you know, lips on camera? And the director at the time, I can't remember who it was, loved it. They were like, no, it's great. You know, and the whip pan is, adds more energy. So that became like a whole language. We, we incorporated those whip pans into a lot of scenes, you know, as we got going, probably more in season two, I think. But, um, but that was always the fun is finding those things in the rehearsal. Um, mm-hmm. But I think any of those classic trauma one 
roundy rounds where because a lot of those scenes where yeah sure there's a guy dying or has a piece of rebar coming out of his chest or, or whatever but the scene is really about the fact that you know juliana just got yelled at by morgan stern two scenes earlier she's still reeling from it so it's it's about to it's about you know her her scene her whatever she, her character is going through right now so a lot of that stuff like you know again going back to the pilot Rod Holcomb said, you know, a lot of these scenes are just shoe leather and expositional dialogue to get us to the next scene. So I'm not going to spend a lot of extra time on those. So, yeah, so I think that that kind of stuff, finding in the rehearsal, the, and then, you know, sure, we do 9, 10, 11, 12 takes sometimes, but we print like two or three of them and say, you know, we, we, we got the scene in one. We don't need any coverage. Um, it really It really plays. It tells the story. It does everything that you know, we wanted to do, plus it's vintage classic ER style, which we, you know, we kind of found um, through trial and error. And then the final one is uh, if you could work with any of the directors from the show that you worked with uh, on another project, uh, who would they be? Oh man. Well, obviously Chris and Mimi. Um, God, it's like, it's been so long. Um, I, I still keep in touch with a lot. Fred Gerber is somebody I keep in touch with um to this day charlie Hayde is kind of semi-retired now but charlie was always a blast charlie had a whole career as an actor uh you know he was on hill street blues as renko and um just one of my favorite people in the world we keep in touch almost daily through social media he came and did some third watches with us and charlie i'd like, like to see charlie back in his in his fighting days you know he's he's, he's slowed down a lot but um wildly creative man and just like as fun as they get irreverent no filter um i i'm jealous of those kind of people because i do kind of edit myself when i talk uh not so much uh, on, on political twitter anymore in the last four years <laughs> um hmm. i've been known to light some things up but um but yeah charlie charlie would be good to hang with again i want to i'm waiting for this whole thing to blow over where everybody feels comfortable and it's grabbed for for brunch or something one of these days soon but no my you know my mentor chris chulak i mean i can't say enough great things i, I went to an episode of southland with him a while back it's been a little while now and then he's been doing seal team for the last few years and i and mimi of course always um again wildly creative and just interesting and fun and and just you know great people to collaborate with is always the best feeling where where when you, when you're on the set i always like that when i was a camera operator where the director would we'd rehearse we'd get the actors on set and they look around and find me and they look and we'd share and like okay you're watching good you know it's like when mimi told me about peacemaker i'm not doing it without, without you I, I want you there with me we're going to go do this thing and and, uh, and um i go yeah what time and where what, what you know where, where do i what, you know what 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 terminal lax and what time i'll be there <laughs> Uh, and then one final question for you that uh, we've kind of made a habit of asking everybody we've talked to this. Um, what do you think is important for fans of ER to know about it from your unique perspective? In other words, when you think back on your time working on the show, what would you want fans to know about the experience that wouldn't necessarily be clear just from watching? Uh, I mean, I, this may not be anything that's a revelation, but that cast really did love the hell out of each other. Like, like Eric, I remember George giving Noah a convertible, like classic car. Cause they just got so close. I think after they shot the pilot, I don't think Tony went, but I think George, Eric and Noah went on like a trip to Europe together. They, you know, 
like uh, they, mm. they they flew there they took the euro rail around they got very close and you know Noah was like 10 years younger than all those guys mm-hmm. um but again as as skilled an actor as you'll ever meet um george ha- was always the maven of giving good uh, advice to everybody like he had been through the i mean at, you know at, his, at the tender age of what 34 at the time he had already been through the wars of you know pilot seasons and agents and managers and being screwed over and cut out of things and so we all asked him for advice daily and he gave great stage advice um Mm -hmm. no i mean it was really a unique time there was no jealousy of nobody was jealous of anybody everybody kind of had their own things going on um i remember i remember sherry was unhappy i mean you know again she had a boyfriend in new york she was kind of unhappy because with an ensemble cast a lot of times, you know, you'll work a scene in the morning and then you have nothing the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Or there'll be an episode where you're in every scene and it's kind of like feast or famine. And she just, she was kind of, you know, she was young. She was 27, I think. So she really wanted, that's why she left early. She didn't fulfill her five-year contract. She was like, I don't care. I want out. I want to go away. I want to or go back to New York. And I respected her for it, but I mean, you know, crazy at that age they were throwing all this money at her and she's like i don't care um mm-hmm. but they, there was a real genuine love and then gloria i remember joining we all just completely fell in love with her um i remember tony got asked to be in the to drive in the long beach celebrity grand prix we all went down there with him and cheered him on there's some great pictures of us hanging out in the pits with him and um I remember, you know, birthday parties, everybody would show up on the weekends to one, you know, somebody you know, at the time, you know, George had a, I mean, uh, Tony had a, uh, you know, Bailey was a brand new baby. I had my brand new, you know, she was three, four, five months old when I started on the show. So there was always kids parties and stuff. So it was really, it was, a, there was a chemistry there that, that was uh, pretty undeniable. And, and, you know, again, you hope that stuff translates on the screen. And I think it did. I mean, it was actually fun as it is in any situation where, the actors would yell at each other on screen and then we'd say, you'd hear cut and they'd laugh like, this is fucking ridiculous. I love you, you know? Um, <laughs> but it was great. I mean, it, it was, there was very little turnaround between scene or turnover between, between seasons with crew. Um, everybody wanted to go back. Everybody was excited to go back. And what was fun for me, I mean, even though I kind of moved to New York from like 99 to 2003 to do third watch, I would come back on the odd, like long weekend and edit and uh or i'd start spend a whole week sometimes editing and doing other stuff to do with the show but i couldn't wait to get on the lot and i'd park and before i go to my third watch editing room i'd run down to stage 11 and just you know hug and kiss everybody and um it was great everybody wanted to know what was going on with me and you know know, i remember god the day i got home from peacemaker going on the set and describing you know what it was like to travel the world with me and george and and um, and also, you know, George's makeup and hair people, Rolf and, and Waldo, they were so there was like the six or seven of us that did everything together on that movie. So it was great to come back and regale everybody with these great stories of traveling the world with Mimi. And um, no, the, the the other great thing is, and and again, you were talking about unsung kind of heroes, and I mentioned props, makeup, hair, wardrobe. Um, that that sort of ensemble cast that wasn't one through six um Mm -hmm. ellen mike genevieve's uh yvette uh uh, connie 
who I keep in touch with almost daily on Instagram now. Um, Kristen Minter, you know, Deezer, who, you know, I was so close to Deezer. Mm -hmm. He was, he would make me laugh every day with these stories about trying to become, you know, break in as an actor. And all he wanted to know is, can I get a line of dialogue? He would come on as an extra and go, hey, can I get a line of dialogue? And they go, shut up. And eventually somebody gave him a line of dialogue and he got a sad card. But these stories were always great. Um, Abe Ben Ruby, who I have since cast and worked with on other shows, and I'm leaving out a bunch, but they were sort of the heart and soul of that show as well. And there was always that, mm-hmm. I mean, the writers loved to lean on them because it was always great um, B stories to be had in that, in that world with them. Um, you know, get rich quick schemes and pyramid schemes. And, um, that was always a lot of fun to shoot those, those sort of, uh, you know, the interstitial scenes that were B and C stories in, in every episode. So there, there were, those guys were the unsung heroes as well, for sure. Cause they were there every day, almost every day. Cause a lot of times we'd see if they got established in the, in a, a, the teaser scene being at the desk, that meant that they were on that shift. So every time we went to that main area, the, you know, the ambulance bay doors, they had to be there whether they had dialogue or not. But of course, we all loved each other to death. So it was, it was all it was like hanging out and going to hang out 13, 14 hours with your best friends all the time. You know, it was, it was always good stuff. Mm-hmm.